Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where we explore what it means to be a well-rounded, happy, goal-crushing athlete. Every week, myself, sports journalist Molly Herford, and cycling coach and kinesiologist Peter Glassford interview experts and chat through all of your training questions. We're excited to have you along for the ride. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Peter, how's it going? It's going excellent. How are you feeling? You were just out on a mountain bike ride and it might have, I don't know, I said the first one in a year, but I don't know if it had been that long. Hadn't been that long, but I definitely half a year. I mean, it, to be fair, it's been fall, winter. It's it's not like the mountain bike. You ride been, a lot. You've done yeah. other bike rides, but uh, it, it's been a while. And these were real mountain bike trails too. They, they were. You did yes. great. You did great. Thank you. Now, are you, you able to walk today? Um, I am actually okay today. Although, you know what? The fact that it's Monday and it's a rest day, I'm not going to lie. I'm psyched about that. Uh, but it was really fun. It's always that, honestly, the level of dread going into well, you were riding I do. three na- national three champions, na- masters, national champions. So this is true. There this you is go. true. There you go. And you know what? We'll cast a veil over the age categories. Uh, but suffice to say, I was the slow man, um, and that was okay. But no, I mean, honestly, just the, the level of stress and dread I felt before the ride, just anytime you're riding with with new people, these are new friends of ours that we met down here in Brevard, uh, but anytime you're riding with new people and you haven't been riding for a while, there is like a huge, I don't think it matters how good you are. Okay, maybe like a pro tour rider doesn't have this, but I think most of us, even no matter how fit you are, when you're riding with new people, there is a stress about just like... How is this going to go? Am mm-hmm. I going to be slow? Are these trails, especially with mountain biking, are these trails going to be really technical? Like I can muscle my way up climbs. I can, you know, ride for, sure. you know, days, no problem. But the second the trails get super technical, like I'm going to be in trouble. Mm-hmm. So and I do think this is you know, as much as you and I are okay you know, moving on our own. I do think it's a good reason if you are going to do events, which we do think you should do events of some type, uh, race or Fondo or tour or whatever. Uh, we do think this is good. Uh, but I think this is also an argument to train with other people, exercise, move, adventure with other people, because those nerves then come out, especially if you are going to be racing in something. I think that social dynamic is something that, you know, is going to hamper someone's race performance if they're not used to some of these social comparisons and and so forth. I don't know that you ever lose them. For sure. But you get better at just sort of saying it'll be okay. I you know what? I'm so proud of us. We also went to Run Club on Wednesday. Our uh friend down here, Steve, who we randomly ran into in the forest. I'm gonna be clear, he right. he noticed DW. He recognized DW before he recognized us. We are not we are not famous. Our tiny dachshund, very famous. Uh, loud, yeah. Or loud, loud, or yeah. loud. Uh, anyway, he was there. He mentioned that uh, in Pisgah, there's this you know run club that meets at 5.30. There was a brewery involved. So naturally, we were like, sign us up. Uh, we went to that. It was total blast. Met some new people. This is all very out of our introverted comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, man, it's been, it's been a month for that, from murder mystery parties with okay. horse people yeah. to this. Like, we are... Oof. So there you go. So, I mean, we're talking a lot about the social side of things, uh, I guess here in this kickoff, this intro, if we can call it that, uh, we had two good questions here, which are bigger questions, you know, and more on the nitty gritty of, of training today. So we'll do our best with that. Was there anything else in the intro you wanted to get done? Uh, just that, uh, you know, 
it's we're getting into the beginning of not quite spring season, but I mean, we are mid-February, late February at this point, which is terrifying to think about, but we are in late February. Uh, so really that thinking about, you know, if you are kind of questioning what you're doing for the spring, if you have a spring race coming up, it might be time to, uh, you know, either book a consult to kind of talk through that if you haven't really been doing much and you're just not really sure where to proceed or how to proceed. Or if it is a specific event and you're you're thinking, okay, it's, you know, between eight and 16 weeks away, say it might be time to think about that three-month custom plan to get you to that race start feeling your best and ready to perform at your best. Sure. So you can find those over at consummateathlete.com or we'll just throw links into the show notes for that. Yeah, I think tis the, tis the season, right? Like January, early January is always pretty hectic for that stuff, but then... Uh, I think this time of year also it starts picking up because now everyone's realizing, oh, crap, racing is uh, not as far away as we thought, right? Like well, and maybe you're getting, you know, the weather improves. I always joke that there's the people who think you only train indoors because you can't possibly train outdoors. And then there's the folks who wait for the training outdoors so that they can train outdoors because you can't possibly train when it's crummy outside. Right, right. Um, so there's probably a middle ground there somewhere. So I think those folks who are waiting for the better weather and they can, you know, get outside a little bit, that that's sort of coming, coming, depending on where you are. Well, and I mean, this is, a, you know, I wrote this article back in November of 2021 where it was like the kind of joking, but also very serious that like in, in November, Unbound is not as far away as you think it is. And by the end of February, those early June races, especially the really long ones, like they are, they are coming fast. Okay. So okay. yeah, definitely. If you have a spring or summer goal, let's, let's chat about it. Uh, and I mean, that kind of leads into this first question. Do you want me to read it? Yeah. I have it pulled up okay. um, with our current setup. The computer is further away. So here we go. I got my phone here and we're going to read this. So would you recommend any sort of testing as we get into the most intense blocks of training to make sure my zones and numbers all line up? I know there's testing centers in the town. Uh, these people do lactate threshold and VO2 max testing. Would you recommend completing these tests to complement your programming? Ooh, okay. I so, guess that's my programming, but yeah. yeah. Uh, so this is, uh, this is basically, how do you feel about test don't guess, which is a saying that I feel like has really been going around the, the cycling sphere lately. And I mean, really any fitness sphere, right? Like we, this came up when whoop started coming out. This came up when, you know, like any of the wearables the really testing too you, has some sort of variation on that. For yeah. sure. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, whether you're talking about what actual... is it, the proof is in the blood or something. Yeah. 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 Even like CGMs where you're testing blood glucose, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I do think this has been around for a while. Um, but as testing gets more and more ubiquitous, less and less expensive. I mean, it's, let's be clear, it's still expensive, but uh, it's no longer where you need, you know, a hospital setting basically in order to do a lot of this stuff. So we we did do this. I'll link to the past episode if you want to see what we said years ago. I, I don't think we'll be a ton different. Hopefully, we'll add a little bit of nuance and some of the wearable, as you say. There are some new options in the 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 spectrum of what could be called testing, uh, but I'll I'll link to that. So I do think this is a 
an interesting question. You know, it's something that there's probably a few things we should say right off the bat as far as, you know, there's there's few people we know who do make their livelihood even testing people, you know, in quote unquote lab testing or uh, trainer testing or indoor testing or whatever you want to call this. So I think it's all good. So I, as with most things, if you want to spend your money, spend your money. If you like it, if you've been doing it, if you believe in it, I think continue doing it. So any of the, if we call them criticisms or downsides or, you know, alternatives we talk about today are just that, um, you know, I think lab testing, as it were, we'll get into the definitions here in a second is great. But I think just that caveat going into this, that we're not disparaging anyone, hopefully, uh, with, you know, our viewer stand on this. Okay, love it. Love and it. Then, now, now on to the disparaging. <laughs> well, there you go. So do you want we can we should probably say so that it, when we talk about testing for, you know, cycling or running, it's basically the same endurance sport, especially, there's sort of this spectrum of what you might call field testing. Uh, up to lab testing and, and lab is sort of a loose term, but at the far end of that spectrum would be, you know, you're in a university use usually, or, or a professional lab of some type. And someone who has probably got a lot of letters and designations beside their name is taking you through a test that they've probably executed and studied many times in their life. And that's a big portion of their life is, you know, as a physiologist, studying and executing these highly you know calibrated and expensive to run tests on very big and expensive machines uh that are you know well calibrated and in like the most you know clean environment possible um you know that would be at the far end of what lab testing is like imagine a lab from a cartoon and you know that's that's what we're talking about and then on the far other end would be you know you at home or, or you know out in a on your road bike doing a, a a time trial right the classic 40k tt would be a form of testing right uh maybe even on the other side of that you know moving would be like strava going for the segment would be a form of testing. So there's all these different things you can do. The runners do their 5K or 10K time trial. And it's not exact, right? It's a pace. There's wind. There's the shoes. There's all sorts of variables that could play into that. So as you get into field testing, there's that spectrum of just the variables and how concerned we can get with it are, are probably increasing as you go into field testing. But it's probably beginning to look more like your sport where if you're a road cyclist or a runner and you do a 5k TT, the 5k TT might actually be your event. So when we get into predictive value, you start getting this argument between, yes, there are some variables, but that is also the sport you're doing. So it's not that one is worse than the other. It's just the lab test is probably looking at one or two specific pieces of, you know, VO2 max lactate threshold they're measuring a specific thing whereas the field test is measuring that whole messy thing that you do in the field right yeah so there's that spectrum so that's is testing i guess in a you know mm -hmm. there's all sorts of things in between there but that's okay idea. so what are what are sort of some of the primary tests that a cyclist might do i guess let's start ftp test is sort of the most common one most of the time you're doing that just at home as you say like on the on the on road the trainer, or on or the trainer. It could be indoor trainer. It could be on the road. I mean, certainly there's lots of people now are doing on Zwift and these different systems will have different ramp tests, which is sort of like a VO2 max test. You're just not wearing a mask. In most cases, you're just gradually increasing or ramping the, the wattage, usually in steps. They might call them a step test or a ramp test where you go, you know, 100 watts for three, five, eight minutes you know, 125 watts, 150 watts until you fail or until you get to say a threshold or a certain heart rate, right? They don't all go to maximal, you know, collapsing over your handlebars, but some do. 
Um, and then usually in a lot of those ramp tests, you could be looking for different things, uh, but a lot of them, including the VO2 max, you're sort of looking for this peak minute uh, power output. So in the, it's called a few different things, but I think it's like peak power output is actually what they call it in a VO2 max test. So you get to your VO2 max, which is the max oxygen consumption, and then it's the peak power output for that minute. And then usually they do something with that. Okay, but you've skipped to VO2. Sorry, where was I? I was asking about FTP, which oh, is the most common okay. of the... Yeah, so that's just, you know, usually people will do 20 or 30 or 60 minutes of, of steady state or quasi steady state is I think what the definition says uh, to try and determine this power output that you can hold for an extended period of time. And most most of the time, your power curve, so like what your or your power zones are determined by FTP testing. Like that's just sort of how most coaches are going about doing this. Pretty much, yeah. If you're doing power, yeah, that, that's pretty much what you have in the field, right? You don't really have uh, that peak power output, so you could determine it based off of that. They also call that maximal aerobic power. If you had a VO2 max test, you could take that minute and do something with it. Um, but it, the, the threshold, you're always using a percentage of that test or, or, you know, the functional threshold power, similar to what we might do with like a lactate threshold test. Um, but yeah, that's the idea is you set your zone, your power zones off of that. Yes. Uh, and I was actually interviewing Tim Cusack, who is one of like the longest running cycling coaches in the U S I'd say he is big in training peaks mm -hmm. and the WKO like analysis software. Yeah. Yep. And I actually asked him about this question and he said, you know, for most people, FTP really is that's your, your primary measure. Like most people, that's what makes sense. It like you can, if you add other tests, there might be slight variations to what your power zones are going to be set at, but mm -hmm. I like, I, ha I have to pull up the quote, but I think he said something to the effect of like 98% of people FTP, like making your zone set based on your FTP is going to be pretty accurate. Right. And this gets to the the question here is, you know, t if you're, I guess it was sort of implicit in the the question I read there is, is, you know, if you, if you don't do physiological testing or, or lab testing, are you indeed guessing at your zones? Or, or you could invert that and say, are you that sure that the lab test that you did is not also, you know, guessing, or you could say, what is the error margin on that? You know, especially as you start getting further and further away from the day of that test, um, you know, how, how sure are you that you're, we're not all guessing no matter what. Um, and then what is the margin of error that's appropriate, right? Right. And I think there's just so many differences between, you know, being in a lab setting versus like, I mean, at the, like you said, the farthest out being on your local hill, mm -hmm. like it's just, it's apples to oranges in a lot of ways. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I did a lot of testing and I'll say with Steve Neal, who was someone, if you can ever go and, and test with Steve, he's out in Kelowna, um, you know, and, and it's not because of necessarily even the testing stuff, you know, he would probably disagree but the testing is very worth it. I don't know, it probably is but i think it's more working with these people who have been testing for a long time and can give you these nuggets of wisdom and guidance i think that's actually more what you're paying for if you can go see someone like that but i would say most people who are offering testing don't have those years of experience and or the designations that make them you know a physiologist with a lab and then where i get into the margin of error problem is a lot of the equipment that's not you know, lab equipment does have pretty big margins of errors in ways that they can get screwed up, especially if you don't know what you're doing. Um, and if the equipment's getting moved around and, you know, it just gets tricky if you're, you know, in a gym and the stuff's, you know, again, not really great equipment. 
then this is where I get like, what's the margin of error on this? If, if they did the test again the next day or a week later, would you get the same results is sort of the question. Right. Which also gets to just the human body. Like any, anytime we're testing, we're testing in that moment, in that exact like moment of time. And I think there's always going to be a plus minus of what 10, 20, whatever watts, right? Like if you, you know, for a woman, like you have PMS that day, you're feeling really flat. Like, sure. Or you yeah. put a bunch of fatigue into the system yeah. or you eat a little differently. Again, this isn't necessarily even something that lab testing can solve. And, and it does test the one or two metrics, right? And, and assuming the test is well done and the person knows what they're doing, you probably get a reasonable measure. But then the question is you have a VO2 max and then what are you going to do with that? Which again, the people who do the testing might be able to paint a narrative around this, but this has always been my question with it is, does it actually tell us more about what to do with our training than something we might in, you know take from race results or take from experience or take from just where our training experience right like if you're just starting you know the answer is pretty straightforward what you should do right and i think to come back to your first point about the expense of it uh you know again not saying you shouldn't do it but just like this is an expense if you test once that doesn't really mean anything if you're not going to retest. Mm -hmm. So your cost is not just one test, right? No, I, I would say you'd want to do a lot, right? And again, we did a lot as I was coming up. And I was telling you a story last night that some of the things I remember the most and I think took the most benefit from were actually more supervised intervals that weren't, I wouldn't even call testing. Um, you know, Steve was probably taking lactates during this. Um, but it was more, you know, a, I was with another person. So that gets to the social thing. We started off with like a competitor, a friend, but a competitor in both cases that I'm thinking of one was actually outdoors, much like in women's cycling, where every competitor is your best friend. Best friend. Um, but then, yeah. And then also having the coach there sort of like coaching the session. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, one was indoors on a trainer and one was outdoors, like repeating the same section, but both with another person. And I think that's what sticks out for me is that like the two that I think about are probably one of the few that were with someone else there, uh, like another athlete also there, which is interesting, right? Because then it's like, could you get a similar benefit just by doing intervals with right. your friend? Right. Where, yes, it's nerve wracking, but so is the race. Right. And and you push harder or, or you know, whatever. Um, I, I think it's just there's some good learning there. So where are we going with that? Um, OK, uh, actually, before you go any further okay, with that, good. I do want to jump into can we just briefly talk about just the difference between I think there's like a little bit of confusion with VO2 where there's the what is your VO2 and then what is your VO2? like on the bike power wise. So can you maybe speak to Oh yeah. So that? that's what I was saying with the peak power output or or mean or maximal aerobic power. So it's sort of that like peak minute. And I'm not that well versed in this, but that's the idea is that you could maybe take power zones out of even a lactate threshold, like any of these physiological ones, while they're doing the test, they then associate a heart rate and a a power usually uh with those physiological measures. So when the lactate you know, begins to rise exponentially or at two millimoles and four millimoles or whatever they're doing, uh, they, they would say, okay, around this power, usually they don't say exactly at 300 watts. They say plus or minus, you know, this is about your lactate threshold, which sounds a lot like functional threshold power. I'm not saying they're the same because people get really grumpy about thresholds, but that's the idea is that around this, you know, and then we're going to take a percentage off of this. So around 300 watts, cause that's about where there was a rise in the lactate, then we're going to build your zones, and these are the zones that apparently you're not guessing at 
based off of this test, even though it's still a percentage that's being taken off of these. Okay. Now, what is VO2, like the number that shows up on our Garmin? Just, I think we probably need oh, his definition. This is one where, you know, Marco Altini, who's the HRV for training guy, a lot of his, uh, he has like, well, not seven, but he has two, uh, two PhDs, I think. And one is uh, around some of these machine learning and uh, estimating physiological values from data. And so he, basically what you do is you can do it with power. You just plug in uh, a, a power value and then it takes, you know, your body weight and then does a bunch of, you, they just, they have formulas the same way as, you know, when you do those scales that estimate your body fat percentage and whatnot, it's not really, it's just sensing sort of like, you know, the impedance that's going through your right. thing. And then it's guessing based on a formula. So it's, it's measured, they've measured lots and lots of people. And then they made a formula that sort of seemed to estimate within a certain margin for, you know, to be as close as they could. So that's all that the, the watch is doing is it's saying, okay, you went this fast or your heart rate was this and your weight is this. And it's plugging it into a formula based on what the watch or the bike computer knows. And that's what WKO also, uh, the training peak software will also say, okay, your, your threshold value is this, your curve looks like this. So we're guessing at what your VO2 max power in this case, or again, mean, mean maximal aerobic power would be, um, yeah, based off of these values that it knows. Okay. And just to kind of keep furthering my, but what does this mean? What does mm. this mean? Uh, with the, with the VO2, um, if yours says, you know, 55 or 70 or 40, like what is the range or mm -hmm. what, like, what, what is it like the maximum that it can be versus well, the I lowest guess that's the it question. can be? So there's some people will say, okay, well, this like determines whether you could go to the pro tour or not. And, and there's probably a bit of, there's genetic factors you'll see. Okay. I don't know. What is the range? Oh, I, I mean, like a quote unquote normal person might be 35 or like, you know, 40, 50. Uh, women tend to be maybe 10% lower than men, again, on average. Um, and then they say, you know, the trainability in a textbook, they'd say- What you, is the high? Oh, sorry. Uh, so mine would be like, say 70, but if you were in the Tour de France and doing really well, it might be like 80. And I think, you know, the outliers are like 90. And then there was one guy, I don't even remember, he was a young guy, 18. I can't recall his name. He quit the sport, which is often a lesson here. He, his was almost a hundred milliliters of oxygen per kilogram. So this is the relative value. So it's relative to your body weight. Okay. So in theory, it could be over a hundred. This is not like a percentage uh, scale. I don't think uh, if you were a horse. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I don't think humans, if I, like, I, again, this is where I, just I don't think so. It happens to be weirdly maxed out at a hundred, even though it's not a percentage. It's, it's, yeah. I don't know. Usually it's, usually you'll see like seventies and eighties would be most of the like high elite people. Okay. Yeah. But if your number is not high, what does that, like, does that mean like, A, is it trainable? And B, does it mean that you like, can't be elite? Because I'll, I'll tell you right now, my Garmin does not estimate mine very high. What does it say? Like 53. Yeah. I don't think that's irregular, but you also don't max out a ton too. So this is where it gets tricky, where some of these watches don't know enough. So if you went, well, it is like a new watch. You'd have also. to go in almost run, you know, like a, a ten, five or 10 K and really max out. And then it would have a bit more data. And, and I don't know with running too, right? Like you run on trails a lot of the time too. So it's, you know, if you don't ever wind up a hard, like pavement effort, like I don't think it's able to guess necessarily off of, you know, cause it doesn't know what soil you're on. And so it's, it's hard for it to know, right? You have right. To always ask like, what does the thing know about you? Uh, especially with these wearables. Uh, where were we going there? We had, uh, the, the VO2, the oxygen. So trainability, they say 10 to 15%. 
that you can increase it. There's people that say it's different. I, I never understand. I think they mean, you know, the absolute value rather than the relative value. So the relative value is the one where it's per kilogram. So it's relative to your body weight. So if you lost weight, not saying that this is unique yeah, to don't lose weight, do this. but if someone was very overweight and their VO2 was what it was and they lost weight, then that relative value is obviously going to increase because the kilograms, you know, the right. weight changes. So there's also that. So I imagine that's what they mean, but it seems unclear in a lot of the things you read. Uh, so yeah, so that's the idea, but it can, I don't think anyone thinks, you know, I think that's really changing over the last few years that it isn't like a death sentence. If you're, you're 50 and you, for some reason need to get to 60, but the other thing to remember with all of this, I think two good examples, a Lance Armstrong ran a three hour marathon. His VO two max is like say 80. I don't recall what it is, but it's high. So he ran a marathon. He was very fit. He had pacers. He trained, you know, not, you know, a long time, but trained enough, but his VO2 max was 80. So he should have won the marathon, Right, right. but he did, like I did a three hour marathon almost the same year and mine is 70. Take that Lance. So what that means is that, you know, there's obviously you need to train for an extended period of time for endurance sport to do well. Uh, and there's obviously specific adaptations that aren't that right? So they always say that it's not that predictive. You, you're curious about it in a lot of endurance sports is actually the that that threshold, whatever type you're doing. And what you'll see often is the people who have very high uh, VO2 max, they actually are less efficient a lot of the time because they don't have to be that efficient because they're, they can use oxygen. They can, they're bringing in so much oxygen. Right. Now the people that are lower, say someone's 70, but they're just in the tour de France, they could ride at a high percentage of that. So their lactate threshold is a higher percentage, closer to that VO2 max. And that's where you see some variability and why you might want to know all of these thresholds and these VO2s and things is because that might tell you, you know, how your training's progressing things. So say yours is 50, but maybe you can operate at, you know, 45 or a high percentage of that forever. Right. And then it almost doesn't matter because someone who's, you know, in, in the women's stuff, maybe there are some seventies and, but maybe they all run at the same, they run at say 45 because, you know, they're, that's a higher value and they don't have to, right. They, right. they can already move that much oxygen. It's just a lower percentage. So that's sort of, you know, always a thing that you'll see in textbooks is that people with lower was just end up running at a higher percentage. And it's again, those different thresholds just operate at different places. Right. Okay. So Maybe coming back to the testing here, maybe what are some of the questions you should ask yourself before you book a test? Yeah. Like, like are you training? <laughs> I would say get going. So I, I mentioned earlier, you know, if you're not doing much, it's pretty obvious what you need to do. And, and we didn't really finish that, but you need to increase the frequency of your training. And I really look like, I think you could watch the Steven Seiler Ted talk, no pain, no gain, and then start training from that. Like the idea is it shouldn't be hard and you should be able to do it a lot. So if it's so hard that you can't do it the next day, this would, you know, strength training, soreness, running, you know, you can't walk the next day. You did too much. So walk more, you know, this type of thing. So starting out this thing that you need to set your zones to start training is just ridiculous. Like I always think there's probably for people starting out, there's probably two zones. There's like easy, call it under 80% of whatever you want. <laughs> just easy. You talk test is commonly used here. And even in any of this, like the Anigo San Moran, Milan, Milan, um, who's on Peter Tia podcast, we'll link to this. That's, this is where a lot of the, the next question as well is coming from this. And he's big on zone two training um, and, and lactate and this sort of thing. And, and so his 
the end result of all of this is probably the talk test is what you want to start using when you're training. If, right. If you can't be taking lactates throughout all of your training. Yeah. And I did actually interview him about zone two a while ago for bicycling magazine. Actually, when we were in Leadville, I interviewed him uh, over the summer and that was exactly what he said. Cause I asked like, what is sort of the testing protocol? How do you know if you're in zone two? And he's like, well, can you have a conversation? <laughs> there you go. Yep. Uh, and I mean, it's, it's funny because I, and maybe, maybe I'm missing like I'm sure at at the lower or like shorter end of the spectrum, runners are doing a lot more of these tests. But like certainly in you mean like at the elite level, is that what you mean? Uh, no, like shorter distances, like five k, ten k, crack. But and maybe some marathoners are. But I would say for the most part, the even the top marathon runners, definitely the top ultra endurance people, are really rolling off of like easy, media, easy, moderate, hard. Like that's certainly what I train at and yeah. like seems to work pretty well. Well, we were talking about, you don't really do much, even field testing. No. And I don't know what David does across the spectrum. That'd be an interesting question next time we have him on to talk a bit towards that. But um, yeah, it's, in some ways, like I, I've heard a few coaches talk about, you know, if, if you can't do the training, then you're probably training too hard to, you know, so you need to train easier to accumulate whatever the volume is for that sport, especially in ultra, as you say, like it's this, they call it trial of miles and, and putting in the volume over time. And, and so when you start seeing people breaking down, sometimes that's the thing is that they're training into this middle ground a bit too much. And for some of those athletes, you may need to go get testing so that someone actually tells you, you know, look it, <laughs> you know, there's a break point here and your lactate's increasing and you keep trying to run at 150 beats. And for some reason you won't run at 140. You need to start doing it, even if it means walking, like this is what happens. And that's why you're getting sick or you know, some people might need to go and see that. And I think that's a great reason to go get testing. If you're not having success in training, right, then I think you probably are the type of person that should go get, you know, see it on a screen and have someone, you know, in a lab coat or, or who looks like they know what they're talking about, tell you, you need to train easier. Right. Which I guess is maybe the second question is like, is training working or are you, you know, wrecked all the time? Have you been plateaued for months? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, we didn't talk about one other type of lab testing that's actually getting more popularity. And this is that metabolic testing. I think this would fit in with that zone two or aerobic threshold testing where you're trying to find sometimes this fat max they'll talk about the point where you're burning the most amount of fat. Right. And, and when you start up, especially these tests aren't as, as fast in the ramp you know, they don't increase as quickly as a VO, a traditional VO2 max test that sort of ramps up to difficult hard, uh, sorry, quickly. Uh, these are more gradual. And what you're looking for is this point where the, they can measure the amount of carbohydrates you're burning and the amount of fat you're burning. And then there's a crossover point usually where you start burning more carbohydrates than fat because you're going harder. And what you'll see and, and what the narrative usually is, is that there's some people who are sugar burners and, and sometimes they'll even like be standing there and they're just burning, you know, more carbs than fat, just barely moving. And so these are, you know, I don't know what you do then, like what's your training zone? I don't know. I guess you, just, you walk or you lay there or something. Um, but the idea is that those people would benefit from, you know, trying to increase their fat max. And, and, and indeed, most endurance athletes, that's what you're trying to do in zone two and one, one and two, the endurance training zones. You're trying to increase the amount of of fat utilization you're doing, right? And then the mitochondria, you know, increasing these as well, the density of those. 
Mm -hmm. So by testing this, uh, then, you know, you're trying to find that fat burning range, right? Which is, you know, we all see that on the treadmills and all these things, right? Right, sort of right. always been around. So that's the other type of testing a lot of people are doing. And indeed, some cases might make a lot of sense if someone's not, you know, making progress just with, you know, what we might call standardized zones or, you know, basic zones, power zones off of a threshold or a max heart rate or whatever. Right, right. Okay. Well, I think hopefully that uh, I feel like that just might have muddied the waters more for people, but uh, hopefully that helps just at least contextualize testing just a little bit more. Well, and if you, you know, you're someone who's gotten testing recently, you know, A, you know, I, I do think that the power is on the the returning to the, the next test, the retest, where you've trained successfully for a few weeks, months, you know, probably six to, you know, six weeks to three months or something between and then you go back and you test again, and and then what changed? And this is, I think, where you can decide for yourself if it was interesting. Uh, you know, was it motivating for you to train better? You know, did you learn anything? Um, and then the other interesting experiment to do is, you know, if you do have zones based off of any of these tests, is to just compare them to what are your threshold tests off of a threshold, you know, field test or max heart rate or your threshold heart rate or the mafetone thing, 180 minus your age. Right, right. <laughs> you know, it's pretty surprising how often that works pretty much well enough. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's a tough one. So. Right. Right. So. Okay. Well, yeah. if you have any more specific questions around testing and, you know, when to do it, how to do it, why to do it, uh, definitely hit us up, consummateathlete.com or on Instagram at consummateathlete. Um, just, yeah, really kind of enjoy these very nuanced questions. Uh, as everyone knows, whenever I interview someone, I love the answer. It depends. So very fun. Uh, also, I feel like if you're watching this on YouTube, I feel like I look like I'm like, an evil like villain type person because dw has has joined the podcast and he's like sitting on my lap so i feel like i'm just like sitting here like stroking this little dachshund yeah are we going to do the second question i think the second question um i I do think it's related to this one but before we do that one there there is like all these wearables coming there are like some of these breathing rate measurements that are coming you know it's often like built into almost like a heart rate strap but there's a few different ways this can work and I think those might be really interesting for this like talk test thing because it actually is showing you your breathing rate. And so you can see if it's increasing and you know what's a steady state. So I just want to mention that as that's sort of an interesting thing that's coming when we're talking about testing and you know wearables and you know zone two and all this other stuff. Yeah. I think maybe the last thing now that you mentioned <laughs> that, uh, there is no end to the amount of testing, wearables, apps, like et cetera, that you can buy to calculate things regarding your training, but none of them are actually training. So right. just bearing in mind. That and, like- and everything in physiology is this big spectrum that shifts depending on, again, all these different factors, right? So it is, it is tricky. And I do think, you know, that getting out there and doing it, you know, yeah, just be careful that you're not spending your free training hours trying to decide which test or wearable or whatever you're going to do next. Right. And I think, we, again, we'll get to the question that we're going to cover here, the second one. But a lot of these things, I do like that, you know, well, do most people do this? And have people been successful without doing it is sort of interesting, right? So it's it's always sort of coming back that like, it might seem that like one person on Instagram is doing this, but there's probably a lot of people who don't do it, um, you know, regularly. And again, this is the thing is like, you know, are they actually using it to make any decisions or indeed are they just doing it and then guessing like the rest of us for the rest of the year or, you know, the rest of their career. Um, it's hard to say. So 
we talked about metabolic testing zone two. So this is the aerobic threshold. Um, you this know, so, so conversational pace, right? So this is what we're beating around this. So there's sort of the, the three values, if you will, right. If we keep on this testing thing. So this is the aerobic threshold. So this is where you go from easy training into moderate training. Okay. And then there's the lactate threshold or the anaerobic threshold or the ventilatory threshold or the functional threshold per hour. They're none of them are the same, <laughs> but they're all sort of hinting at when we go from moderate to hard or severe or difficult, right? So if we think about a three zone system, there'd be easy in the middle between those two thresholds, there'd be moderate. So this is where your tempo and your sweet spot and your threshold uh, training zones are. And then above that is what you might call anaerobic or really hard or sprinting or VO2 or these other things that are up above the thresholds, the anaerobic thresholds, the functional thresholds. Okay. So a little confusing, but there's sort of those three values. And it's interesting to think about training just in that way is that we have these three values or types of uh, intensities, if you will. And we can sort of, they move a little bit independent of each other. They're not at a set value. And so if you think about your track sprinters might have this huge sprint capacity, um, you know, cyclocross racers, you know, maybe like really high lactate threshold or maybe really high VO2. I don't, you know, it could go either way, I guess. And then, but then your Ironman triathletes on the other spectrum, they might have this really high aerobic threshold or zone two that might be really, really high, but they might have very little sprints. There might be, you know, they might be really tight. Those thresholds might be really tight together, if that makes sense, right? If you can think about them, sometimes we talk about ceilings and, you know, a house where you're like, you're raising the the, the levels of the different ceilings and the, the floors. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I still just like easy, moderate, hard, but yeah. okay. Well, and that's probably the three zone system is probably the best way to think about it, where there's easy, moderate, hard, moderate is between these two thresholds, aerobic and anaerobic. Let's just use those terms for, because people generally know them. So the idea then is, is my training, my endurance training, my zone two training, is it ruined? This is the question. Is it ruined if I go into the moderate or severe, uh, you know, zones, if I go too hard, if I surge, if I go a sprint, if I do an interval, has it ruined all the zone two adaptations that I was going to get from my zone two endurance training? Right. So you're out on your run and there's a little hill and you continue to run up it and you breathe really hard. You can't pass the talk test. May as well go home. Just, I mean, not even go home, just lay down on the trail. Yeah. It's just over. Well, your life's over. Yeah. Yeah. Just the bears can come for me. So again, I think some of this came from uh, Dr. Inigo, who was on Peter T and a few other things and talked about- To be clear, we love. Yes. Uh, talked about the, when you do surge like that, what that means as per the testing conversation is the lactate might increase. You develop a bit more lactate because you're working harder. You don't pass the talk test. Your breathing gets a little more labored. So you develop a bit of lactate, which isn't bad. It's a fuel. It just means you went a little more, quote unquote, anaerobic. You went a little harder. So then the idea is that some of the gains, because now we have this other fuel, then we're not burning fat as, you know, and so then the mitochondrial adaptations and all these stimulus apparently might be on hold for 30 minutes or so after this surge. And that may be true, but that doesn't mean that, you know, you've lost everything or that workout doesn't have benefit where it is, or that there's a whole other set of adaptations that might happen because of that surge or those lactates that are in the system. You know, it's it's not clear that that's bad, but it might be slightly different. But I think what we're come back to is that people have been exercising for a long time and doing sign sprints and doing intervals at different times during the workout. 
So I think we need to come back to that. Like it probably isn't the end of the world because we're all still here and we're all still training and probably all of us, you know, have to get up a hill and don't have the, you know, fitness to get up the hill without going out of zone two. Right. And I mean, certainly if you're an off-road athlete, I mean, unless you're, you know, as we were briefly training in Florida and where it's pancake flat, like there's always going to be at least small climbs, like even the flattest route that I can find mm-hmm. like on the trail at home is going to have those hills. Like sure. that's, that's just part of it. And I mean, it's also, I mean, I recognize the importance of doing the zone two training, but at some point you're like any race is going to have it's true. ups and downs. And, and so I think what we're trying to avoid, you know, there's this whole spectrum again of if you're not actually ever in zone two, which is usually what I see is, okay, well, this just was not at all an endurance ride. You were going very hard a lot of the time, you know, maybe you're trying to keep up with a group ride. And so what you'll see is people are in that middle ground intensity, a lot of the ride, and then they'll call it a zone two or an endurance workout. So that's not the same. And what we're looking for is lots of time in that endurance range. And then other days that are either moderate or hard in their focus. And those days that are moderate or hard in their focus, I think do whatever you need to do. Some people will say, you know, you do a bit of endurance training zone two, and then uh, towards the end of the workout, that's something that again, Dr. Nigo has popularized here a little bit in the last year or so, where you sort of get the, the benefit of your endurance training and then do the uh, you know, glycolytic or the anaerobic or the hard or, you know, whatever intervals later in the workout. But I mean, people have been doing, you know, warm up intervals, cool down forever. And I think you probably want two of those in the, because there are other benefits, especially when we start thinking towards performance and racing, um, riding off road for fun, these sort of things, like it's just going to be that way. There isn't really a way around it. That's sort of the way to do it. So I think what you're looking for is this intensity discipline, which is something Tim Cusack, you mentioned earlier in the podcast talks about a lot where some days are flatter and at your own endurance pace. And then other days are more spirited interval training, group rides, races, whatever. And you get that good mix in the week. Right. Now with, with your clients, or I mean, just in general, would you say in the endurance like thing, are you better to try to stay in the, I think most people are probably better served trying to stay in the lower end of it versus kind of creeping into that, like turning of the endurance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, some people, this is gets to the beginner. I think you just need to get out the door and do it. I don't think you need to stress over it because what when Dr. Inigo is talking, he's often speaking towards, you know, I think a little bit, you know, these people who are doing it for health get on their, you know, Peloton or whatever, and they pedal that zone two, you know, that's very controllable and it just takes a bit of discipline. So I agree with that. You know, if you're doing it for health a few times a week, doing 45 to an hour of, of zone two is probably good. And that's very controllable for the people who are trying to get out and ride and race it's just hard because the it's you, you can't control it when your your threshold is very low your fitness is relatively low right you don't have a lot of watts right whereas people in the pro tour can probably go up to say even 300 watts uh you know where and still be in there so too and so, that's actually what uh, uh dr sam milan pointed out when i was interviewing him about zone two he's you know poga car can do that you know, climbing Alpe d'Huez. He can do any route in the world and just use his gears a little bit and he'll be fine. Yeah, exactly. So slightly, slightly more nuanced for the rest of us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's where I think that's where the more zones and a little more of that discipline or, you know, the specific 
intensity they're doing makes sense. Whereas for a lot of other people, it's sort of what is the focus for today? Get out the door. Is this an easy ride or a moderate ride? Try and pick your routes accordingly is, is important. You know, when we don't have a lot of watts, if you can't make it up the hill, you know, without going over, then I, I think that makes sense to try and pick your routes and, and plan your days accordingly. And that does, I think will be beneficial. And then you'll have more energy and better recovery for those hard days. And those would be the days you go and do the hilly route. Um, you know, you do the mountain bike, the off-road workout that's going to require, you know, that there's just no way to do it off-road. Right. And the other side, you know, sometimes I think the bigger question is when we're doing endurance, you want to keep your legs moving. I think this is sometimes missed, you know, you don't want to sprint and you don't want to coast. So this is the idea is that you try and ride really steady. And so this is also where the route becomes a bit more important. And that's probably a bigger focus for a lot of people is just keep your legs moving, no coasting, try not to soft pedal. And that usually gets rid of some of that, you know, I'm surging up every hill. If you can't coast, you have to keep pedaling on the way down. A lot of people that'll smooth it out over time too. And then you'll start seeing, you know, fitness should start improving as well from that. But I think that's probably a, bit, a better way to think about it. You know, a bit of the talk test, but then no sprinting, no coasting and away you go. And don't panic if you go a little bit hard up a hill. No, I, I don't think so. I, I don't think that's a, a huge deal, but I, I do think, you know, it's possible that those exact, you know, gains might be different, but it's not to say that you're not gaining fitness or gaining benefit right. from the workout by surging. Um, you know, there's certainly other things that happen, you know, and again, this is where we get so spun up about one thing in the body and we forget that there's all sorts of things in the body. Um, you know, if we start thinking too much about lactate, then you forget that there's all these other mechanisms and things going on. Um, especially when you start thinking about a chaotic thing, like a mountain bike race, right? How many different ways do you lose a mountain bike race, <laughs> right? You crash into the tree. It didn't really matter what your threshold was. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I think Tim Cusack said that like 10 times when I was talking to him last week for a different article, just like the body is a complex system. The body is a complex system. Uh, okay, last question on that before we wrap up. Um, the heart rate versus the power zones. In theory, they line up perfectly, right? Like that's on paper. That's yeah. what they should yeah. do. No, they try and do the um, same number of zones and everything else, sure. Yeah. But so in this like staying in zone two thing, um, which which one are we focusing on? Or I mean, you know, does it count as over if the power hasn't gone over the zone, but the heart rate has, or sure. vice versa? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's a good question. It's hard. I don't know. I don't know. It depends who count. I don't think it really matters that much. Again, I think what you're looking for probably is that there's no. You're not sprinting. You're not coasting. So the heart rate's staying more in that zone. Um, the power is staying more in that zone. The averages would be in that zone. If the average is at the top of the zone, that usually means that you spent a significant amount of time above the zone, right? If that, so if your top of zone two is 140 beats per minute and the average is 140 beats per minute, then probably, you know, either you were pegged right on that, or you spent a lot of time at, you know, 150 and 145. Right. So I, I think that's probably the bigger thing is, is that, you know, how much time are you out of that? How many minutes did you accumulate in that zone? And, and a lot of the software training peaks and so forth will give you buckets that you spent for power and heart rate in those zones. It'll also tell you how long you were coasting, you know, in the bucket for the zero uh, cadence. So you can start tracking these types of things. I, I think that's the, the bigger idea. Well, and I think definitely just keeping an eye on are the zones consistently lining up like you know, from like, approximately, yeah. Like it's one thing if like one ride, your heart rate is like a little more elevated. You know, well, there's it, so many, again, I, it 
complex system, lots of factors. Yeah. You're a little hungover, you're a little fatigued, whatever. <laughs> you're at altitude or it's the first hot sure. day, you're getting tired. Yeah. Um, but I think if that consistently is happening, like every ride, you're, you know, trying to stay at that um, endurance mm-hmm. power but your heart rate is going over the endurance heart rate zone, uh, it's time to reassess where that power is. Right. So, and there's three things. And I think it's worth using all three things. So the feeling, the heart rate, the power, because you're right, there's going to be all sorts of variables. You know, we've been training for a while here, a bit of a base block. And I tend to be someone whose heart rate starts getting depressed uh, as I get more volume in me. So I can start riding, you know, the other day, I think I did, I was even mountain biking and it was like 117 beats or I think was my average, um, which is getting towards like, I wouldn't, that's like the bottom of say like a zone two, like it's getting to zone one, which is fine. Cause we're doing lots of volume, but you know, it was hard to push my heart rate up, but then the power is actually, you know, solid, right? Like I, I think it's good to normal power. Um, and then the feeling was actually a little tired feeling, which often you'll see the depressed heart rate with a bit of tired feeling, right? But the power actually is okay. So this is where you need to be careful because if you keep persisting like that, then that become can become overtraining right. and, and lots of fatigue. So you, again, this is where you can start being like, okay, well, what would I do the next day? Well, probably you need to recover. You know, you probably wouldn't try a hard workout. You probably wouldn't want to be mountain biking that next day. Um, you know, it might be either an off day or a flat recovery day or something like that, where you try and get that muscular fatigue or whatever's causing that depression, right? So I think there's a lot of testing that can come out of this training if you pay attention to these different things. And, and there's a reason we don't want them to line up, right? Or else why would you, this is what Marco always says, like if your HRV just matched your training load or something like this, like why would you even, why would you even capture these things, right? It doesn't make sense. That's not what you want. You want these things to be actually a little different so that you can start seeing these different trends, right? And see things right. changing over time. Well, and your ideal, I guess, is that your power is going up, but your heart rate is actually staying lower in that zone, right? Uh, or, or normal. Yes, yeah, so your heart rate might be the same, but you're pushing more power. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. So if you were still in your heart rate zone, the power starts creeping up and up, you know, again, assuming that would be an example, again, where in my what I just gave you that where I could have kept my heart rate in the the heart rate zone for endurance, but I would have probably been like pushing towards threshold power for a while, at least right with a very high feeling or perceived exertion. And so you'd want to be careful because that wasn't the idea to be pushing that much power and that that type of feeling on that day, right? Mm-hmm. And I do think that's where feeling and breathing and things like that, muscle tension, um, that almost should guide a lot of it, right? And usually they line up pretty well, but that's where you might end up lower in a zone because the feeling is just to be at the top of that zone is, is a little harder. Yeah. So I would say if you wanted your quote for an article, a takeaway, I would say heart rate usually is how I would guide that. Um, but there are lots of situations where it gets trickier. Um, so it is nice to have two or three of those other things to, to triangulate. Mm-hmm. All right. Perfect. Well, let's wrap up there as always. Again, more questions, consummateathlete.com, at consummateathlete on Instagram. And also, if you are enjoying this podcast, do us a huge favor. Please rate, review, subscribe. Uh, the review is super easy to do. It's really, really, really helpful for us. Uh, we greatly appreciate it. If you're not sure how to do it over on Instagram and actually on our website, we do have like a quick tutorial on how to leave a rating and review on Apple podcasts. I know it can be like a little bit confusing, but yeah, appreciate that very much with that. Have a great week and we'll see you next Tuesday. 
Thanks so much for tuning in to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you want to hear more training, racing, and endurance sport advice, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at consummateathlete.com for a weekly dose of inspiration and advice straight to your inbox. 